invite you to open your Bibles and return to the book of Hosea, page 751 in your pew Bibles. Hosea was a prophet of God called on to embody his relentless love and to win back his wayward bride. It's an extraordinary love story. And if you have eyes of faith, it's our story. And my prayer is for all of us to fall in love with the God who has set his love upon us, his bride. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we have come to worship you. You are love, and you have manifested yourself in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we have lifted him up. And it is our prayer this morning that we will continue to do so. Because we know when we lift you up, you will draw all unto yourself for worship. So this morning, Lord, I pray that for my brothers and sisters in Christ here to get together with me, that we would worship you afresh and anew all over again. I pray, Father, that you would give us faith to believe and to trust you for this incredible love story, and that you'd fill us with joy and delight in what you've done to reconcile us to yourself. I pray that your spirit would take over and that you would be pleased and inhabit the praises of your people this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I was asked by Mike Watson several uh, weeks ago to fill in for a Sunday school class this semester uh, while he's teaching Hosea, while he was traveling. And I'll be honest, I was intimidated at first to teach this book and teach this prophet with such a call upon his life. But my faith has been so enriched during this study. And it has exposed me and has broken me again over my own waywardness and pursuit of sin. He's arrested me with his incredible love, and he's renewed my passion to speak of this reconciliation and to draw others unto it. And my brothers and sisters, I pray today that it so inspires you as the Spirit has so inspired me. As Pastor Blair preached last week, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, completely for all time. He doesn't quit on us. And why? Because he ever lives to intercede and pray on our behalf. So I thought about that verse, or I remembered a quote by John Owen that pointed out that saving us to the uttermost means that Christ will not only bring part of our salvation and leave what remains to ourselves or to others, whatever belongs to our entire complete salvation, he is able to affect it and complete it. Christ does not leave us to ourselves, but brings about our whole salvation from its beginning at regeneration to its fulfillment at glorification. And that truth, as we will see in Hosea, should absolutely flood us. As I preached last time about the task before us to plant a church, it starts with us being filled with Jesus to the point of saturation. Remember, as we talked about last time together, we looked at Paul's prayer that he prayed for in Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul prayed that we would realize that the Father put all things under the authority of Jesus and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which he says is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
That's the Father's plan, to fill you and me with his fullness, with the fullness of his son Jesus, so that we would fill the earth with his glory. I can't say that enough during these days in the life of our church. The purpose why we exist as a church is to display God's glory, to spread his glory. That is the foundation of truth of why we exist, and it's the reason why God is motivating us and leading us to plant more churches. Our goal is not church planting, but it is spreading of his glory for his namesake. When we make disciples that make disciples, reaching those that have yet to be changed by the power of the gospel, that is why we're here, for us to be changed by the gospel. And then to share our lives with people in our community that need to see and experience the life change that we have experienced. That is our mission. That is why we're here, to get equipped to do just that. I pray that God would so fill us with his love so that we might be able to do that in boldness. The gospel is relational. And Hosea teaches us that, that God wants to relate to his people intimately He doesn't want to just be seen as your master. He wants to be seen as the lover of our souls. He doesn't want just us to be able to do for him. He wants us to be with him in a loving relationship of submission and listening, repenting and doing, walking with him and finding rest for our souls. I don't know about you, but I long for that rest. I long to experience the presence of God. I long to him to be able to take over everything in me and for me to abide, to rest in his spirit, to fulfill his mission, his mandate. And his desire to do that, we can expect him to pursue us, to wound us, to rebuke us, but we also can see him woo us Woo us in his passion for his glory and our good. And he will be relentless in his desire to do so. His passion for us should stir our passion for him. It is exposure to his character that will change the trajectory of a person's life. I pray that you know that, that you have experienced that as you've come to know God. It has changed your whole demeanor. It's changed the purpose and direction of your life. He needs to be seen as a relational God. And that is best done through relationships. And it is in that hope that God communicates his message through this prophet Hosea. It's my hope this morning for us to be moved by God's love for his people as he demonstrates this life and this calling through this message. And I do say moved because this is poetry, this book. In Biblical Theology by Michael Lawrence, a book that Pastor Blair is leading us as a staff to go through, he highlights the importance and understanding of different genres of the Scripture that the writers of Scripture use. And in Hebrew Hebrew poetry, it presents extremely compressed image-rich language meant not only to communicate truth, but also to evoke emotion. That's the way God has made us. And when we come to this book, it should evoke 
the emotion that God wants us to see. We need to feel our own waywardness in our own heart, just like Gomer. And then we need to experience God's relentless love as he comes and pursues us. And then we need to embody this message of reconciliation to those that are wanderers amongst us that need to experience this same love. So that is my hope this morning. I know that there are some here that have never spent time in this book, but let me just give a little background and setting for this book. If you will read with me Hosea 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Well, that verse gives historians and Bible scholars a time indicator of when God called Hosea. Hosea. And these kings lived during a time where God's people were divided and the people had rebelled against God's leadership and they demanded a king to be upon them. And that's where we remember that Saul stepped in. Well, you most likely know that that kingdom leadership was then passed on to the unlikely shepherd boy David, who was a man after God's own heart, but flawed. Then his son Solomon takes over, and while given wisdom, he intermarries and leads the nation into idolatry. And after his death, the kingdom is divided into ten tribes in the north that retain the name Israel, and two tribes in the south that is named Judah. Hosea, at this point, is called on God about 200 years after that division. He was a native of the north, and it was a time by all outward appearances the nation was thriving. They were enjoying success from neighboring countries and enjoying trade and living it up. But with that same time, that that prosperity came loose living and ultimately forgetfulness of God. And they had wicked kings that led them into severe idol worship. Hosea's ministry took place right before God's judgment of the coming Assyrian invasion that happened in 722 B.C. So Hosea ministers about 25, 30 years during the close of a period of prosperity, but with moral wickedness that would eventually culminate at the end of the northern kingdom. It was at this time that God gave a unique calling to Hosea to embody the message that God was preparing him to give. So let's pick up reading in verse 2. When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now I know that is a startling word. It's hard to say it, especially in church. But it's God's word that he chooses to use, and we need to see why. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. It's page 74 in your pew Bibles. Guys, up in the sound booth, I'm sounding really hot up here, and I'm hearing a ringing in my ear. I don't know if everybody else hears it, but if you could bring me down a little bit, I appreciate it. Exodus 34, the Lord is telling Moses to be able to cut stones like the first ones that he gave, that he broke. 
And the Lord is telling him to be ready in the morning to come up to Mount Sinai and to present himself. No one should, should come with him. So verse 4, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And the Lord proclaimed his name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as you have not created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do for you and with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. As this covenant is renewed, God is wanting them to see that these promises that he has given them is based upon his love relationship with his bride. In verse 14, he highlights it's because of his character. It says the Lord's name is jealous. Now, some would stumble over that because typically we see jealousy as sinful. And it is when we want something that doesn't belong to us and we're jealous about it. But what if it does belong to you? Being jealous for something that God declares to belong to you is actually good and appropriate. Like, I'm jealous for the affections of my wife because we belong together and we are one. And that was, was what God is saying here. God says, I not only created you, but you belong to me and I want to be one with you. When he says you shall not worship any other God before him, he is saying don't give any of your affections that belong to me to anyone or anything else. I want your worship. I want you to treasure 
me, to revere me, to admire, to esteem, to praise, to love, and delight in me and only me. I am your Lord. I am your God. I am your husband. We need to understand that concept in order for us to appreciate the imagery that Hosea has given us here. What happens if we, the church, which is called his bride, start to drift into a love affair with the world and what the world offers? Well, the way James declares it, he calls it, you adulteresses. That's a very significant. It's adulteresses because he's treating the church as the wife of God. James says, do you not know that friendship, a love affair with the world, is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you do, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over your spirit, over the spirit that he's made to dwell in you? Well, that's the scenario with what's happening in Hosea's day, but it even goes deeper. The charge is not only spiritual adultery, but it's temple prostitution. It is selling of one's body that God created for goods that God promised to provide. When God calls on Hosea to marry Gomer, he wants his prophet to feel what it's like to be married to a twisted, unfaithful wife with a wayward heart that offers her body to others that ultimately will not satisfy. It's what Jeremiah the prophet said. I have two things against you. You have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to go hewn cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. So Hosea's love for Gomer, despite her prostitution, is to mirror God's love for his people, despite their twisted unfaithfulness. God wants Hosea to embody this message that he is sent to give. It is a message that we need to receive. We need to understand how much God loves us. When we go after him, we pursue other things, things that are empty, things that are shallow. Sin is sweet for a season, but its end is destruction. Many of us know what that's like to go after another lover, to go after something or someone else that is not good for us. It's broken. It can't fulfill us. Well, that is what God is trying to do in Hosea's life as he declares this message. And you can imagine called on to be able to love Gomer and her waywardness. It's a supernatural love. Well, God allows them to have three children, but he chooses to name those children with significant figurative names that would be striking for any neighbor to hear. You turn back in your Bibles to Hosea now. Lord said to him, verse 4, he has a son, 
And the Lord says, I want you to call his name Jezreel, for in just a little time I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again, and she bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. First son, Jezreel. The actual word means God will sow, but it became known as a place of bloodshed. It was the place that would bring to mind in people's hearing the place where Jezebel had arranged Naboth's murder in order for Ahab to take his vineyard. It would later be the place where Jehu ruthlessly murdered the prophets of Baal to the obedience of God, but he did it in such a way that he was impure, and he ended up going back to worship other idols. So your son is named Jezreel, bloodshed. Your daughter, no mercy and a son, not my people. Can you imagine having your children with those names as they go out amongst their neighbors, and your neighbors hear those names, and they're struck by such names? Why such names? Then look at verse 10. Yet... Love that conjunction. The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Verse 1, chapter 2, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. And in these verses here, you get the thread of hope, with the gospel just woven there just so briefly. Even though there is accusation and judgment, there will be restoration, and that's the cycle of this book written in descriptive Hebrew, Hebrew poetry that is designed to move you to grasp God's heart for his people and the hope for the future. This poetry is also prophetic in that it looks beyond the coming Assyrian captivity to it, a literal fulfillment for all of the true children of Abraham by faith. Chapter 2 starts off with God's case against Israel's unfaithfulness. God, through Hosea's pain, he pleads his case with his bride. Look at with me there, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother, meaning Hosea is to plead with her mother Israel, the nation as a whole. 
Is she not my wife? Is she not? Am I not her husband? And in the first few verses of this chapter, you hear God's accusation that culminate in verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. Hosea, God says, she has acted shamefully. She has said, I will go after my lovers, crediting them with giving her basic needs. Now imagine this is what Gomer said, and it is what the nation said. Before we shake our heads in disgust and unbelief, we need to look in the mirror. Right? It is not what we are saying to God when we choose our sin over Him. Isn't it the same thing? I will. With that statement, you get a window into the sinful heart, the sinful soul of man. I will. It's a statement of defiance. I will. Not your will be done, but I will. And that is the heart of sin, right? Sin is selfishness. I want what I want when I want it, regardless of who it hurts. You and I know what sin is like. And it starts with that statement, I will. And it's defying what God has called us to. So what does God do when we hold our fist to him and we say, I know what you want from me, but I will. I'll go after what I want. So what does God do in the midst of that? Well, God matches your I will with his I will. I want you to see this. This is amazing. Verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge her up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. God says, I will, and then he says that I will, he is demonstrating his loving discipline. It's what God says to us in Hebrews. Hebrews tells us this discipline is because the Lord loves us. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short period of time, as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For all moment, the discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And when God says, I will, in verse 6, I will hedge up her way. I will allow her to be able to experience the pain of thorns. 
he's telling her, I'll let you go. But I'll let you go under my eye and under my hand of loving discipline because I love you that much. And I'm going to let you feel what it's like to be able to walk away. And sometimes that means that we walk away and our sin begins to hurt when we begin to walk away from him. You and I both know what that's like. It pricks us. It pains us. It's disturbing. Like I said, it may be fun for the moment, but all of a sudden, then after you swallow it, it turns. And you hate it. So God says, I will. And look at verse, we'll start, pick up in verse 9. Therefore, I will take her back. I'll take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take my wool, my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I'll punish her for the feast of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with ring and jewelry, and went after her other lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. And then we have some of the most beautiful verses in all of the Scripture, verse 14 through 23 that was read for us. But before we read those verses and I start preaching that sermon, I want you to see what happens here in chapter 3. Skip over there to the beginning of chapter 3 because it picks up the story of Gomer. Gomer has run off again to the arms of another lover. And God says to Hosea, go, lover again. Go after her. Go find her. And go pay the price. Look at chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is adulterous. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leaf of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore belong to another man. So will I also be to you. What a picture. What a picture of the gospel. God has paid the price, the bride price, with the blood of his son. Do you see it? Hosea embodies this redeeming love that is not his. It is God's. And he says, Jose, I want you to feel it. What it's like for my love to take over and for you to be able to love a woman that you didn't think you had strength to be able to love. And Hosea embodies this love. Just as Jesus put on flesh and does the same. We didn't deserve it. We deserve to be forgotten, amen? In our stubbornness and our rebellion. But when we forget him and go after lovers, what does he do? Look back at verse 
13, the end of chapter 2 there again. Even though my bride went after other lovers and forgot me, verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is, this is the section that should make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. This is our story. We deserve to be forgotten. Any of us would say, since you did that to me, I'm going to forget you. I'm going to walk away from you. But God says, therefore, I will allure you. I'm going to go, and I'm going to pursue you. Even in your sin. And I'm going to come after you with relentless love. And I'm going to allure you to my beauty. I don't want you to go through the pain of where you're going. So I'm going to match the attraction that you're having pulled to that sin. I'm going to match it, and I'm going to woo you. I'm going to woo you, and I'm going to speak tenderly to you. I'm going to take you to the wilderness, and I'm going to speak to you. We're going to spend time together. Have you experienced that? I have. God is a God that is full of relentless love for his people. And it should make us in awe. There's some of us in this room that are struggling with sins that so easily entangle us. And it's so hard to put them down. Some of you are in bondage to sins that you've been in bondage to for years. And you hate yourself because of it. I want you to hear God's Spirit saying to you right now, I love you. I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to come after you. And I'm going to woo you to my beauty. You're going to see I'm so much better. Has he done that for you? That's our God. It's amazing. It's amazing grace. Leads him, the nation, into the wilderness to speak tenderly to her. That is where God's courtship started with the nation Israel. After he released them from bondage, from slavery, he sent them into the wilderness in order to feed them, in order to give them drink, 
in order for them to be able to see he was worthy. So he showed them his glory, and he courted her. The people were able to see an incredible act of redemption. And that Exodus act was the defining act of redemption in Israel's history. Now it becomes the pattern for future acts of salvation. Look at verse 15. And there I will. Did you hear all the I wills? This is God that he's committed to you. Therefore, I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Well, you know your history. The valley of Achor was a very important place. That valley, when God opened the door to the promised land, for his people to be able to go through and to experience the blessings of his promised fulfillment. It was the Lord's battle. And the Lord told them, when you go into this land of Canaan, you're going to experience incredible bounty. But I don't want you to take any of the spoils because this is not your war to be won. It was my war. But if you know the story, you know the young man Achan. He took some of those possessions and his lust for greed. And rather than taking those possessions and dedicating them to the Lord, he took them and he hid them in the ground inside of his tent. And he buried them. God is saying right here that he is going to take that place that is known of a place of betrayal, a place of bloodshed, because he takes Achan out and all the people stone him. It is at that place of bloodshed that God says, now that will be the place for the door of hope. Can anybody else think of a place of bloodshed? A place where something was put into the ground that became a door of hope. Oh, how good is God? If you have eyes of faith to see it, that is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I will make that place a doorway of hope. That's what he's saying there in 15. Let's read it again in verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. A little play on words right there. My Baal means my God. Baal was a fertility god that the Canaanites worshipped. They believed ultimately that Baal was the one that was responsible for giving them fertility in the land. And since that was an agricultural society, they continued to come to Baal every season when they didn't see the rain come. Oh, we got to fall down and we caught a call on Baal. And unfortunately, what would happen is the people would go through these rituals, these worship ceremonies. rejected their God, and they gave their worship to Baal. In verse 16, God says, in that day, my people will no longer call me a God, my God. They're going to call me my husband. That's your God. 
When you look at this passage of Scripture, uh, we got to read it in appreciation for biblical theology and progressive revelation. It's like looking at the horizon at a mountain range from one dimension that looks far away. As you get up high and look down, you see there are multiple mountains that are layered. I like how Lawrence describes that. The progressive revelation of God. We know that there is an Assyrian captivity coming for this immediate audience, and they will be judged. But we also know that there's a remnant that God is going to save. All the children of Abraham by faith. And when you read this passage of Scripture, you see it with those lens. And you can appreciate what God is saying ultimately, because ultimately it has application to the church. At least it did for Paul and Peter, who both quoted this passage, the end of verse 23. Verse 17, for I will, this is God, I'm going to make this happen for you. I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. You're not even going to remember their names. I'm going to take it all away from you. I'm going to purge you. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and with the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety and catch this. Verse 19, lay your eyes on it because it's God's vow. It's his betrothal to his bride. Some of you are getting ready to get married. Some of you just got married. Some of you are married. Some of you want to be married. This is God's vow to us, every one of us, that are called to be his bride. And he says, I'm going to betroth you. And look at what he says, to me forever. I'm going to betroth you in righteousness. You need righteousness because you're unrighteous. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to clothe you with righteousness. And justice. Our sin has to be dealt with. God dealt with it. And steadfast love. That's hesed. That he has bound himself to you with a loyal love that says, I will never leave you. I am always for you. And in mercy. I'm, I want to wed you and I'm going to marry you in mercy. You don't deserve it. You deserve something else, but in mercy, I'm going to give myself to you. I will betroth you to me, verse 20, in faithfulness. Even when you remain faithless, God remains faithful. Amen? And you shall know me. You shall know Yahweh. It's not just a yada, it is yada. It's not just an acknowledgement that he exists. It's not knowing facts about God. There's many of us that know a lot about God. We know facts. We can quote facts. But he is saying, I want you to know me. I want you to be intimately acquainted with me. The actual word is an intimate word. It's a word that's used when Adam knew his wife. I want you to know me intimately like this. And this is what God is saying. 
toward verse 21, and then that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. A place of scattering. Jezreel, the name of his first son, bloodshed. That place of bloodshed would be known as the place of scattering. Through the blood, it becomes the place of God scattering his people. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I'll have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Oh, church, do you hear that? That is God's commitment and his covenant for every one of us. And it should absolutely flood your heart with an amazing love that he has for us. I can't read this story and not see the parallel in John chapter 4. You know the story of the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. Jesus had to go there. He had to pass through that because he had a divine appointment with the woman at the well. Well, who is that woman at the well? It's the same figure that's pictured here in Gomer. It's his bride. The bride that he comes seeking. The bride that he offers living water to. The bride that he says, go call your husband. I want you to think about what you've given yourself to because I'm calling you to be able to rid yourself of that. She was finding satisfaction in relationships, right? She had had five husbands, and the one she was with was not her husband. So Jesus, in his love, confronts that. And he says, oh, I want to give you living water. That's the picture of what happens here. She tries to be able to deflect, and she says, oh, no, I I know there's a discrepancy about where people are supposed to worship. And Jesus says, oh, there's going to be a time when people are going to worship in spirit and in truth. And ultimately, Jesus She's looking at him like, where? Where do I go to get right with God? And Jesus looks at her and he says, you're looking at him. And she, what does she do? She goes off and she runs and tells her city, you got to meet a man that told me all things. And she goes and she is filled with God's love that he has given her. And he, she goes with that relentless love, and she goes and testifies to everybody. You need to know that there is a God that loves you with relentless love, and he wants to use us to be the vessels that he inhabits to reconcile people that do not know this love. Do you hear me, church? This is what we are to walk away with today, an incredible appreciation for the relentless love of God that ultimately that he would come in the person of Jesus Christ, that he would wrap himself in flesh, that he would live out this love to redeem us, a sinful man, a rebellious man, to redeem his church and his bride, and then to be able to die on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin, to die for that sin once and for all, that sin that you love, that sin that continues to entangle you. He says, I'm going to send my son and I'm going to pay for that sin. He's going to rise and he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. And after that third day, he's going to ultimately show that he was God. 
And then not only that, he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your bodies now. And I'm going to fill your bodies with myself, love. And I want you to be the carrier of this relentless love. Hosea, his name means cause of salvation. And it's a picture of Jesus, the Word that became flesh. Oh, church, I pray that you realize the incredible, relentless love of God in Jesus Christ. And it's washed over you afresh and anew. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have an opportunity for us to be able to celebrate communion. Communion is meant for us to be able to feed on all that Jesus is for us. It's an opportunity for us to remember what he's done for us. And in communion, you're being able to say, I want to, as I take this bread and I take this juice, I am believing in what Jesus has done for me. I'm going to pray for us, and Brother Daniel is going to come lead us in the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this incredible love story. A God who loved us so much to come after us, and still does. Lord, there is some here that are frustrated and challenged by their own wayward heart. They haven't given them whole, their whole selves to you yet. There's some here that are one foot in and one foot out, and they feel the pool, and it feels so duplicitous, and it feels so awful, and you come to a time like this, and you say, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And God says, that's okay, because my son is. Jesus came to cover that sin, to wash you, to rid you of it. And he's come to walk with you, to allure you, to woo you back into a loving relationship with him. He may be discipline upon you, but it's for you to share in his holiness because he wants to fill you. So this opportunity as we express our faith, brothers and sisters, is an opportunity for you to confess your sins, to acknowledge that sin, to rid yourself of that sin, and to feast on Christ. Lord, I thank you for this word. And I pray, Father, that you would fill us with yourself now. In Jesus' name.